mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST, and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey guys, it's Candice. And Kayla, and we are Directionally Challenged. Yeah, we thought we'd have it all figured out by the time we are in our 30s. But surprise, we don't. No, we don't, but it's cool. That's fine. (laughs) It's totally fine, right? And you know what? It's especially fine because today we are sitting down with Koa Beck. Koa is the former editor-in-chief of Jezebel and co-host of the hashtag MeTooMemos on WNYC's The Takeaway. She was the executive editor of Vogue.com and the senior features editor at MarieClaire.com. For her reporting on gender, LGBTQ rights, culture, and race, she has spoken at Harvard Law School, Columbia Journalism School, the New York Times, and the Metropolitan Museum of Art, among other institutions. She's also been interviewed by the BBC for her insight into American feminism. In her book, White Feminism, From the Suffragettes to Influencers and Who They Leave Behind, published in January 2021, she boldly examines the history of feminism from the true mission of the suffragettes to the rise of corporate feminism. Without further ado, here is our conversation with Koa Beck. And we are here with Koa Beck. Koa, thank you so much for joining us. We're truly honored to have this discussion with you. You are so well-versed on 
white feminism. And what we'd like to do is start broad. And some people might think it's a buzzword and it hasn't been around too long with the truth is it's been around for a very long time. Can you talk to us about how it's being used in the media and how you personally define it? Absolutely. And thank you so much to both of you for inviting me and having me here. It really means a lot to me, especially given how you're both so thoughtfully engaged with the book. So thank you. I define white feminism very early in the book, in the introduction, actually, to give the reader a working definition of what it is and also, you know, a a definition that they can track throughout the book. And then when they close the book, I define it as an ideology and a very specific strategy towards achieving gender equality that pulls very heavily from colonialism, imperialism, some pieces of capitalism, particularly like labor exploitation, um, and individualized accumulation of wealth as being like a feminist endeavor, as well as some pieces of white supremacy. You do such a good job taking us through the history of it. And that's something that we would love to have you do a short version of for our listeners so that they can follow along. Sure. So as you alluded to in your last question, I feel like in my own professional life, but even just my personal life as well, I feel like white feminism as a term is something that I have heard a lot more in recent years, but I feel like isn't uh, when I have heard it, it isn't really grounded in, in in anything. It's used very flippantly. It's usually made as like a joke about, you know, either a white actress saying something very obtuse or like somebody's, you know, very um, one dimensional politics. But like when I hear these interactions, especially being across, you know, media conversations or like national discourse, it's just not very helpful Um, especially considering that, you know, to my assessment, white feminism runs very deep. So I include in the book a history of gender rights in the United States to help you understand how this ideology formed and then how it has evolved and adapted within different, you know, quote unquote, waves of feminism. Wave is a contested term for very good reason. Um, I start with the modern suffrage movement in the United States, and that is where I attribute white feminism to originating. The women who were pushing for suffrage before then had different practices and different ideas. And while some of them were very racist, their uh, strategies weren't quite the same as like, you know, the women in 1913, 14, 15, who, you know, you've now seen immortalized in films with like the bobbed haircut and they, you know, would pick at the White House and they were force fed. Those are the women I'm talking about. In pushing for suffrage and wanting the right to vote, they embarked on essentially like a a big PR challenge in terms of, you know, women who spoke publicly outside the home, you know, with opinions that their husbands did not share, their fathers did not share. These were deemed deviant women. And I feel like you see this, you know, even play out now on like Twitter, you know, when like a woman has an opinion that nobody likes. Um, so it's it's a very parallel idea that to stand publicly and have an opinion um, as a woman uh, needed to be curtailed in some capacity or controlled. So the way that the upper to middle class white suffragettes handled this is through basically a big PR campaign where they designed in-house amongst various suffrage groups, you know, who a suffragette 
was Mm -hmm. and who you were supposed to think of when you thought of the woman's right to vote. And very intentionally, this woman was um, young. She was able-bodied. She was white. She uh, was very thin. She aspired to be a wife and mother. um, And she was very, very gorgeous. (laughs) And, And I say that like conventionally gorgeous. She was like campaign ad Revlon gorgeous. And um, they exported this version of who a suffragette was everywhere to basically combat really misogynistic ideas about, you know, suffragettes being like scary others who wanted to like subvert gender and like challenge, you know, what women were or supposed to be or how they were supposed to operate in society. And a number of Do you of feel like they were groups- catering to men essentially? Like, see men, this isn't like in almost basically. In a way. Yeah. Okay. And also like affirming for broader society that suffrage shared these ideas of what women were supposed to be. It wasn't challenging them. And when you were thinking about suffrage, you were supposed to think of this nice, pretty, demure white woman who wanted to be a mother and a wife and wanted to aspire to middle class and wanted to buy things. And so it it kind of... Um, didn't really expand what a woman is in like American consciousness. Mm -hmm. And obviously, you know, left a lot of people out, right, who do not look like that or can never look like that or don't aspire to be anything like that. And through there, I track how this streamlined a very narrow set of quote unquote women's values because they all essentially had to operate from that woman's reality. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's present in the second wave. It's very much there in, in the third wave. But more importantly, I track it through what is considered now the fourth wave. Something that I thought that was really interesting to learn about kind of that first wave of uh, quote unquote feminism that we're talking about, um, specifically with the suffragette movement, was how big branding played a part in that. Mm -hmm. You know, you talk about how like Macy's and there's like pins and dolls and, you know, that women were like that was a huge uh, like financial opportunity for people to capitalize on this idea of feminism. And it paralleled so much what happens today, you know, and I, you know, I've bought those feminist shirts or coffee mugs. Um, Was that something interesting for you to learn as well? Very much so, especially um, I've always been interested in suffragist, you know, movements and politics because I'm a big history person. But um, I did not know that, you know, before researching this book, especially in a lot of uh, mainstream women's newsrooms that I've been in. Right. The whole like future is female and like feminist AF and like girl boss. I mean, those were, you know, to my assessment as like a young woman, those were new things. You know, this idea that you could put feminist politics on an object that then you have on your desk or your house or, you know, whatever. Um, And when I started formally researching this book, I learned that that is not true. Um, That is uh, very much indicative of a white feminist practice that has always existed in this country, specifically because white feminists of the modern suffrage era they were looking to partner with consumerism to export their their politics and like spread the idea of suffrage, how important it was. But again, you know who this woman was and like that's why you were supposed to get on board, not because like 
women are people or are autonomous or, you know, are um, relegated to very specific roles of society. No, you are supposed to support them because it was this woman. <laughs> um, yeah. And and it is a, a, a through line, especially, you know, because there has been a lot of criticism um, that's, you know, endured a lot in this country about you know, commodified feminism. Um, but it's not a new practice. But and also how important it is to acknowledge that it was a segregated experience, the idea of even just marching for the suffragettes back then. Like re, re, I, that was a whole history lesson that I never knew about as well. I learned so much from reading your book. Uh, could you share with our listeners a little bit about that specific, um, very famous march and mm-hmm. and the decisions that went behind essentially what was supposed to be women coming together uh, really separated these women and segregated this experience? Mm-hmm. I focus that part of the book on a suffragist named Alice Paul, who is very famous in, in women's history. Um, and she was, uh, I go into a lot more of her, her background, but I, I chose her very intentionally to lead that part of the book because she was raised a Quaker and she was raised to believe in very egalitarian gender roles. So because of the community she lived in, her family, her religion, the idea that women were, you know, somehow submissive to men or, you know, couldn't have the same realities as as men politically or, you know, even personally, that was not something that she was consciously aware of, which I I wanted her to be that that lead character in there very um, intentionally because I feel like for a, a lot of women now in this country, they have similar realities where like because of their families or, you know, the jobs that they've held or, you know, a variety of factors, they don't think women are relegated to these very specific lanes because of the ways that they were raised personally. And then much like Alice Paul, they leave the sheltered spaces of their families or their schools, their immediate communities. And then they see looking out structurally, oh, actually women are, you know, needed in these very specific roles and therefore get peeled out of these various destinies in order to fulfill that for our country. So she, I think, was a very important um, person in history through which to understand white feminism. She went to the UK, got really radicalized in her politics through British suffragists. And then when she came back, she really wanted to, in some ways, challenge the United States on what they had always been saying or sort of like alleging, you know, that that women would be able to do at some point. And she was a very, very big proponent of this kind of feminist branding that we've been talking about. She understood from a very passionate place um, how optics were important. And she did learn that from British suffragists who were photographed a lot in the newspaper, you know, challenging authority, getting harassed by police. Like she understood optics. So she put together this very important march that happened in the United States in 1913 that was set up by suffragists. And the idea was they were going to march all the way to the White House. And it was supposed to be a big optical presentation of like women with, you know, very specific flags supporting suffrage, challenging the status quo. The place that I really zero in on in my research is that as intrigue about this march started to build and it started to accelerate, very understandably, um, women who are not white, who were suffragists themselves, began to ask about details of the march because they also wanted to participate. And Alice, understanding a lot about optics, 
optics and also who was participating in the march and what their politics were, um, she understood that the optics of that parade had to remain white uh, in order to remain, quote unquote, respectable, in order to maintain the visual of womanhood that she was trying to drive home, especially given that so many newspapers were going to be there, photographers were going to be there. And so it's this very um, really grotesque, like behind the scenes uh, like discourse between essentially all these white feminists saying, what are we going to do? Like black women are coming. Um, how are we going to handle this? And up until like the very last moment, they weren't really sure what they were going to do. Were they going to like tell the black women they couldn't come? Were they going to segregate? Were they going to cancel the march? Cause that was on the table at one point. Um, they um, ultimately decided last minute to segregate. And then in a very famous moment, um, Ida B. Wells, uh, decided not to segregate. And there are some photos that exist of her, you know, marching integrated with her unit. Yeah. yeah. And it's important as we discuss this to know that, you know, w- when we use the term history, I think for our listeners, and I know myself as well, sometimes it's easy to think, oh, well, that happened a long time ago. And the truth is it really didn't. And it's no. still happening today. And mm-hmm. there's a part of your book where you discuss those, um, all the feminist um, sort of conferences that happen and all of that and how the price tag on them is intentional because that it is a form of exclusion. And um, can you kind of expand on that a little bit for us? Sure. So I, I feel like especially a lot in my lifetime, and I very intentionally chose, you know, pieces of my own professional life to parallel these historic dynamics that we've been talking about to show that they have continued and they do adapt. Um, a lot of spaces that I've been in and have had to cover, you know, for various outlets, a sort of reverse engineering often happens where it's like, you know, I'll, th- there, there will be a panel discussion or whatever that either, you know, I have to cover or I'm on or what have you. And it'll be like all, you know, white middle-class cis women, or there'll be like three middle-class uh, white cis women and then, like one black woman. Right. And then like, that's considered like, oh, look, we did a diverse thing, quote unquote. There's like a black woman here. So it's okay. But where this falls apart in terms of logic, aside from just like baseline assessment, is that the issues that are being centralized for that discussion or whatever, those are keeping a quote unquote diverse panel discussion from happening because they're about really lofty women's issues. You know, they're about like how to have it all or balancing or juggling (laughs) or, you know, trouble in the C-suite or whatever. And then like that's framed as feminism where like if you actually started with a lot of uh, basic needs, which is what most marginalized genders need in this country. They don't necessarily need a white collar leadership role. They need um, food security. They need affordable housing. They need healthcare. They need education, things like that. If you started with that, then you wouldn't have to, at the very end, an hour before the panel, be like, oh my God, we don't have a black woman on this panel. <laughs> right. Um, and right. that's a lot of times how this happens is like, let's keep the issues very elite and lofty. Um, Because that is the actual barrier that keeps people out from, you know, these discussions or these resources or, you know, whatever. And and then trying to preserve that and then ornamentally put a Latina on the on the panel or like a native woman on the panel or, you know, various versions of that. It's not a very evolved methodology. Um, I heard you speak uh, in different interviews specifically about uh, your time in publishing and writing that you would present articles and ideas to an editor and 
and how it just didn't really fit the brand of what feminism was within that environment. Could you maybe talk a little bit about that? Because I, I really thought that was such a strong point. We're alluding to like what you're saying right now, like having it all, the work-life balance. Like, <laughs> how are your crystals treating you? You know, like, yeah. but, but talking more about things that aren't specific to white women or cisgendered woman, women um, and or women that are have financial security. Sure. So I have spent, uh, I am retired from leadership positions in media now. I stepped down to write this book, but um, I worked in women's media for 10 years and I have always been interested in gender politics and and feminism. And that's always really been my lane and and, and what I've been interested in both um, critiquing, but also in, you know, reporting other people's uh, versions and engagements with this, you know, their, their realities as marginalized genders. And when I started working in mainstream women's media, I'm very aware as a journalist and a writer, you know, when you pitch things, they don't always get accepted. And that's like a baseline reality. It doesn't even matter how good you are. They just like won't be. But being aware of those dynamics, I started to realize in these newsrooms that the things that I was getting accepted always fit a certain pattern. And more importantly, the things that were being rejected presented as like another pattern in that, for instance, all of my pitches that could be applicable to like white aspiring, you know, straight middle-class women who like had a lot of student loan debt and like, you know, wanted a senior leadership position in a white collar capacity, wanted a partner who was cis and would like change diapers with them and stuff that was considered like feminist. (laughs) And yet, you know, when I wanted to do stories on, you know, poor women not being able to afford diapers or like housing crisis uh, details or um, certain financial realities that were crippling for women that didn't fit that scenario. They weren't accepted, but more so what I started to understand and navigate. And again, this is like 20... 15, about 2016 that I'm talking about this, this really narrow version of like white aspiring women's needs, that was feminism. And when I left those pitch meetings, that's always what I was aware of, like pursuing these specific goals, trying to have this very specific life, um, making a lot of money for companies that therefore you have yourself, that is feminism. But, you know, critiquing, you know, like festival culture (laughs) and the way that it, you know, either exploits women or like exploits, you know, female artists who are working, um, you know, in a musical capacity or even like all that, you know, festival wear stuff and all the dynamics that goes on there. um, That's not quote unquote feminism. It's funny because it really made me think, you know, what was especially and and how you start the book post introduction, just kind of listing a few musical artists who are white, who are saying, you know, I'm not a feminist or like skirting around the word feminist um, until you bring up Beyonce, of course, and her infamous like standing in front of the word feminist Mm -hmm. at the VMAs. But it made me think, you know, what that word meant to me as I was growing up. And the reality is, is I grew up with, you know, a 
love for the Spice Girls. So to me, feminism was like, <laughs> you can sing and say girl power and you hang with your girlfriends and throw up peace signs yeah. and you can wear a short skirt or dress and and that's fine. Like you don't have to be judged for that. And I never really understood like this core idea. And then as I grew older, it was okay. Being a feminist is yeah. Owning your own business or being your own boss. Um, you know, not feeling like you can't take a job in a quote unquote man's world. And, and it made me realize, uh, reading your book, just how I never really got uh, to the root of what that word meant. Did you have that realization as well in doing a lot of this research? Or do you feel like when you were growing up that you had an understanding of what the word feminist or feminism meant? Oh, thank you, Candace. That really means a lot to me. Thank you for recounting that. Um, I would say I, I, I never really had a specific, you know, moment that I can isolate where I suddenly did identify as a, as a feminist. I feel like even from a young age, you know, I was very interested in like gendered realities and like gendered responses to culture. And I feel like um, even when I was, you know, in like really early high school and even like junior high to some degree, I feel like a lot of my understanding of say like what we would now quantify as like institutional sexism or like structural mm-hmm. sexism, um, just like the dress code. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, oh my God. Yeah. I, I was, I was always in trouble for dress code as, as a little girl um, and as like an early teen. And I wasn't from what I remember about that age, I, I went to a public school um, in LA Um, I went to a public junior high and like, you know, it wasn't elite by any sense, but it's like, I would always get in trouble for just like the tiniest bit of skin showing mm. anywhere. It was like, I really couldn't win, especially I, I was a very tall, lanky little girl. My clothes would fit for like two months and then they wouldn't fit again. All of my shirts became like crop tops just very organically. <laughs> I wasn't consciously trying to be like sexy or like alluring. I wasn't trying to tempt boys. Like I I was literally reading library books waiting for my parents to come pick me up from school. And yet I was like always in trouble. <laughs> um, and I remember being like 12, you know, and like thinking about that and thinking like, you know, I'm I'm wearing a shirt that I I didn't choose to like attract boys. Um, and yet when I wear this because of the way that my body is, I get assigned this whole identity, you know, of like being this wanton harlot who's like fast and, and like, I mean, I, I was so not a sexually developed person at that age. So it, was, it just like, couldn't be more off. Um, but I do remember thinking very deeply about that, especially you know, as I was pulled into offices and was like made to wear my PE clothes and like my parents had to be called. I mean, you would think that like I, you know, had like stolen something like the way Mm -hmm. that I was uh, treated in junior high. But I, while I remember sitting and like waiting, you know, for my parents to bring me clothes or whatever, I looked around and like, look what the boys get to wear walking around. Mm -hmm. Like they could show shoulders, they could have all kinds of like bicep action going. Um, They, I mean, my school, I remember they had a, it's crazy that I still remember this. Um, You could have no um, bra straps showing. And I remember what the uh, office workers used to always make me do is that you had to do a, um, 
a three finger rule. And so you'd put it like on your shoulder. And if you're tank top, you know, was slimmer than that, then you couldn't be wearing it. And they also had a fingertip like shorts or skirt rule. So they would make you stand up really straight and put your, you know, hands on your thighs. And if your skirt or dress did not meet that line of your middle finger, which is totally arbitrary given how like different people's bodies, bodies are, are proportioned. I know. Like that yeah. makes no sense. Um, yeah. You, you know, couldn't have that either. And yet the, the boys were not held to this standard. Um, And I remember even like when I got to high school, I was on school newspaper and I wanted to pitch an article that um, did not get accepted um, where uh, I had heard from a friend of mine who was on the cheerleading team that, you know, the the cheer squad would, um, you know, do their practices after school on the football field and they'd be in like sports bras and workout shorts shorts or whatever. yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah standard right cheerleaders are athletes that's how they work out and um i had heard from a friend of mine on the squad that the football coach had approached the cheer coach and said um if your girls are going to work out here they need to wear full shirts because they're distracting the team (laughs) and i was like that is totally inappropriate i can't believe you're gonna like burden these 15 year old girls with like the attention of the football team while they too are like perfecting, you know, their own athletic prowess. Anyway, Mm -hmm. that story did not get accepted by the school newspaper. (laughs) (laughs) There's a common theme here, Koa. You pitch these stories and that are pushing the needle and they aren't being accepted. Do you feel like that's what ultimately drove you to step down from a role of leadership and write your book? I think so. I think it was a combination of a lot of factors. I mean, media in general, especially women's media, is super fraught with all kinds of dynamics. I mean, a lot of my friends and colleagues who are still in it, um, as well as those who have left, I mean, people have so many complicated emotions about that industry, specifically because of the way um, it exploits people. There's been a lot of really interesting reporting you can read, uh, especially from last summer about like the labor conditions of these newsrooms, you know, what especially younger women are um, mandated to do to like keep up the sheen and appearances of, you know, a lot of these glossy brands. Um, and I go into this in my book as well, you know, in terms of like many of the places I worked, you know, always championed, right? Professional women, as we said earlier, right? Like that is quote unquote feminism. And yet, you know, many of the women I worked with that I'm still friends with, you know, that I mentored in this place where all this like professional content is like touted, they're terrified to ask for raises. Um, Mm -hmm. They're terrified to ask for time off. They're terrified to have a baby. Um, They're, you know, and like it, it's so uh, in some ways like toxic and I think uh, abusive, but I know that for me and my own career and trajectory and what I wanted to do. Um, I've always wanted to write a book. That's been a childhood dream of mine. And so in a lot of ways, like I, I, I ascended and I got very far in women's media, but that wasn't really my plan. (laughs) Um, I really wanted to be a writer and that's really who I am. And so I feel like as soon as I, you know, had the capabilities to leave, I did. Um, but I think in terms of, you know, the people who are still there, who are still working, there's a lot of really, um, incredible, like union organizing that's happening now with women's media that I think is very important. I think if you, you know, do read these brands and you do engage with their 
content and you do follow them, you should really support these unions because they are ensuring that the women who actually do the work of the content you like, it's making sure that they are getting paid well, they are getting paid time off, they have an, an affordable um, wage, you know, all these types of things. I, I know that we don't have time to go through every single wave of feminism and specifically how white feminism has been like a through line within the history of feminism. But can you kind of take our listeners on um, just a little bit of how, you know, where we started our conversation with the suffragette movement and how we are, where we are today, specifically with white feminism and how there might be the optics that things have changed, but maybe they haven't really changed at the root of it. Absolutely. I think that's one of the one of the veins of the book that I'm most proud of in terms of I really wanted to leave the reader with that, you know, especially having given you this history Um, in terms of where we are now. And most, you know, as most recently as we could get with me having a book deadline, um, (laughs) a lot of this idea of, you know, exporting and crafting who a feminist is or what a feminist looks like. A lot of those politics we talked about with the suffragettes, for instance, you know, this very like white, thin, middle class, middle class aspiring woman who, you know, wants to be a mother, wants to be a wife, um, that those dynamics have continued in, you know, what some people quantify as the fourth wave. And that especially for my time in newsrooms and covering quote unquote feminism, although I make the point in the book that I think a lot of times what I was asked to cover was actually white feminism. (laughs) This idea of who a feminist is, it has really adapted in terms of with my experience, when you hear the word feminist, you know, in 2015, 2016, 2017, you're supposed to think of this, um, you know, young woman, she's probably under 35 years old. She works at a white collar job. She has a smartphone. She's checking a lot of email. She's very efficient. She's super hardworking. She wants to have a senior leadership position. Um, and she probably also, you know, like does Pilates and like eats like salads, you know, with like really expensive figs in them. <laughs> this, is, this is like the first 10 minutes of every rom-com. I know exactly. What yeah. Just exactly. <laughs> yeah. And like that super mirrors, I think what, what the suffragettes pioneered in terms of feminism equals this very, very specific woman. And if you think about like what marginalized genders need in this country, you know, people who are not that or who don't aspire to have that or will never fit into that, that reality, you know, they don't even have a smartphone. Like they don't have the money to buy these fancy salads. They are the women who come in and clean the office, you know, that the fancy like white feminist lady works in. But when you export a really homogenized image like that of what feminism is, that's how it effectively erases so many other people who need this movement to secure basic human rights. You talk about how it is so exclusionary and how there is, there are so many women who almost feel like they're a part of the white feminist movement by doing, you know, tasks for the quote unquote, you know, perfect white feminist who is out there in all of the advertisements. And how do we change this? How do we start to begin to change other people's minds? I mean, I Googled for the fun of it, the top six Googled questions about feminism. And one of them was, do feminists shave their armpits? Hmm. Do you, I mean, it, the, the idea out there in the world of what a feminist is, is still so far from what it truly is. So how do we change the mentality and take it from what 
it was to where it should go. Well, I think a, a big part of what you're referencing with those Google searches is that for you know some practices of feminism, and again, there are many, and I document this in my book for a reason, there has never been a singular feminism. There are many movements, there are many understandings of gender that have been carried out on large-scale ways by all kinds of people of all backgrounds. Having said that, a hallmark of white feminism is that, you know, whether we're talking about now or 1913, it has aimed to appeal to exactly those people who are Googling, do feminists shave their armpits? <laughs> um, mm -hmm. It has kowtowed to uh, really limited perceptions of femininity, um, really limited understandings of beauty. It, you know, it, it has tried to ingratiate with those powers. And a number of other feminisms and movements aren't interested in that. Um, and they don't even try to, they don't even try to engage with it. If anything, they try to critique that system that incentivizes people to Google, do feminist shape mm. their armpits. So I think that in terms of like course correction, um, the biggest two things to keep in mind are for, you know, a large swath of white feminists uh, sort of like grasp on, you know, mainstream dialogues that have to do with like gender, gendered realities, they often focus on the individual. So right. your reality, right, like sitting in your home office, in your family, with your circumstances, and, you know, your partner, that is feminism. And a big part of, you know, movements by queer people, native people, black lesbian feminism, Chicanas, disabled feminism, um, disabled movements broadly, not even like disabled feminism, fat politics, all kinds of groups I get into in the book. Um, they aren't interested in these individual ascension scripts. They more so think about the collective and working with other women and working across coalitions. So I feel like a good place to often start is that if you, you know, for instance, this is a very applicable scenario. If you've been discriminated against, discriminated against in your workplace, you know, whether through like pay, you find out like a cis white guy is making more than you or, you know, sexual harassment for that matter. Um, chances are you are not the only person that this has happened to in this specific setting. If we're talking about like a white collar job or, you know, to some extent, blue collar work as well. Um, seeking out, you know, individual paths by which to rectify that um, follows a very white feminist blueprint. Historically, what has worked and is successful is building movements with other women and working with other women in your office who either worked there, don't work there anymore. Um, how these patterns play out is that it's never just you. There's always more people who this has happened to. And historically, you're stronger in numbers. You're stronger building a union. You're stronger um, you know, working in a very specific like gender group in your company that focuses on feminist issues or, you know, what have you. It's just trying to take on these huge structures that actually hate women by yourself. That is a white feminist approach to gender inequality. It's essentially like, okay, well, I'm doing this for me. Look at me. I've got it all. Like, that's not necessarily feminist. <laughs> and that's really prevalent. It's, it's white feminism. It's white <laughs> feminism. Yeah, I was going to say, that, that's well the root put. of white feminism. Yeah. <laughs> As opposed to like looking around and yeah, the collective, how we can all 
just be better women and not just cisgendered women or or white women or exactly what you're saying. I think that a lot of people heard white privilege last year for the first time and mm. like the lights were turned on and they were like, wow, I, I see how much of this has been ingrained within me and I didn't even realize. Um, if there are any women that are listening to this today who are specifically white and cisgender that are like, oh, my God, I never even realized, like, maybe I'm a white feminist. <laughs> you know, what are certain things they can that, you know, and I'll speak for myself. I am a white cisgendered woman. Woman, What can I do? Because you are someone who has written a book so beautifully on this subject matter. That's why I wanted to ask, as opposed to me just doing a bunch of research on my own. But because we have <laughs> you here. What can I do to break kind of those institutionalized ways of being and how can I be a better collective feminist for everyone in the world? How can how can we be better? I think that uh, a good uh, enduring lie that white feminism has been very good at selling is to, to sort of reframe what I said, you know, to the last question the feminist revolution begins and ends with you and and you individually. And, and I think that's a very limiting framework for a lot of people who are really interested in feminism, gender rights, whatever. Dropping the focus on yourself as the feminist touchpoint can really open you up to understanding these other realities. And then I think another threshold to keep in mind is like allowing, um, and this is really indicative to, to the United States, Allowing companies to tell us the history of gender rights in this country has been quite damaging um, because, you know, all these different companies, and I name many of them in the book, are interested in tapping into narratives of like women's empowerment and, you know, how very singular women or even like a very, you know, tiny group of women have been able to gain certain things for very specific reasons in very specific capacities. But, you know, they have their own vested interests in terms of like picking a heroine, selling a narrative, making sure that you're all gassed up so that you buy like March on lipstick by Elizabeth Arden, which is real. Um, (laughs) So I think that those two things are important, like dropping the, um, individualized understanding of feminism and then also, you know, not looking at these big companies to tell us the history of women's rights. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back in just a minute. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com It's time to get more in 2024. I know for me, one of my goals is to feel really strong this year. And honestly, so far, so good. Because that's where 310 Nutrition comes in. It's helping me and our listeners in the new year with protein and super rich food products with so many options and flavors. Right now, I have the chocolate bliss and caramel sundae, and they are both so (laughs) delicious. I have to hide them from my husband so that he doesn't steal them too. They're a triplex protein blend, plant-based proteins that include pea, brown rice, and pumpkin that leave me feeling full. 310 Nutrition also has a hydrate electrolyte drink mix. My favorite is the peach mango flavor. So not only am I hydrating and drinking water, I have an electrolyte blend, vitamin blend, and it's sugar-free. With one stick of hydrate mix into 16 ounces of water, and it can provide the same amount of hydration equal to drinking two to three bottles of water. Thank you. This way I can keep my resolution, keep feeling strong, have greater focus, feel refreshed, and maintain my hydration without having to drink as much. One of my favorite refreshing water enhancers they have is the lemonade flavor. It gives me energy. This one's also sugar-free. It's used with real lemons and it's pH balanced. And this also offers the same hydration as two to three bottles of water. Right now, 310 is celebrating a new year of goals with code CHALLENGED and giving our listeners 50% off up to $100 for your first order. With so many sample packs, new products, it's really fun and easy to put together an order or start a subscription on products that you know you'll use and will help you keep your resolution. So go to 310nutrition.com and use the code CHALLENGED right now for 50% up to $100 for your first order. That's 310-nutrition.com and use code CHALLENGED. It's all the good stuff your body needs in flavors you crave. So be healthier effortlessly. back. I really wanted to take some time to celebrate what the political landscape looks like right now in 2021. You know, coming from where we started in the conversation and the whitewashing of the the women marching really only for their own rights and um and here we are now and seeing how many women showed up to the polls, not just showed up but actually encouraged women to vote and specifically women of color, black women, and just celebrating Stacey Abrams and Latasha Brown. Has that been really inspiring for you coming off of writing this book and seeing like what it looks like now to be a woman voting and being encouraged by these incredible black women who've changed 
who essentially flipped Georgia, mind you. Mm-hmm. What what was that like at having finished your book and then now seeing 2021 where we're at now? It's a very clear through line from history. Uh, this isn't new. This isn't a new pattern. This isn't a new phenomenon. Um, I cover a lot of different movements in my book, you know, where there are Stacey Abrams is of, you know, different races, different backgrounds. Um, I think what really needs to be addressed, you know, when we talk about Stacey's efforts and that of, you know, so many of the people she worked with and the gargantuan effort to propel voting as an actual avenue that was really not accessible for a lot of people, especially a lot of people that Stacey Abrams has advocated for, is that historically, Black women specifically, Latinas as well, um, a number of queer groups, they're very sensitive and intuitive to the ways in which, you know, power is not only inaccessible to them, but not available to them. And I think that when we talk about these efforts, you know, this was a very clear avenue by which to challenge power. Um, Whereas like, if you look at the ways that, you know, forget white feminism, if you look at just the ways that, you know, white women vote in this country, Trump aside, I mean, this is pre-Trump, white women in this country vote down queer rights. They vote down birth control access. They vote down police justice reform. They vote down immigration reform. Um, Whereas the pattern we saw with Georgia, that's also very historically salient in that women of color, depending on which part of the country you're talking about, um, do support these measures, you know, whether they call it feminism or not. Now, intersectional feminism, it's a new thing to me. Can you give an explanation of it for both me and our listeners? So um, intersectionality is a term that was coined by a woman named Kimberly Crenshaw um, in, I think, 89. And it's this idea that you can essentially not separate, say, you know, as an example, gender and race. And Kimberly Crenshaw, if, if you are very interested in intersectional feminism, I deeply encourage you to go to her and not so much, you know, the people who are using this term now, (laughs) Um, especially as it's become, you know, really prolific in like Twitter bios and, you know, like Mm -hmm. Instagram hashtags. Like I advise you to actually go to Kimberly's work and the way that she described this, as opposed to the ways that it has been, you know, co-opted to either sell things or, you know, purport like, you know, other ideas. Really crassly, you know, her, her concept was you cannot separate being Black from being a woman if you are a Black woman. Um, and there's a very specific um, case that she went into to demonstrate this with like black women's rights to show that th- these actual workers were being d- disenfranchised because they were women and also because they were black. And therefore, that is intersectionality. And what do you think feminism as a whole can look like in 2021 off the mug, off the hashtags, just a true feminism moving forward? What can it look like? I think that it could really challenge institutional power um, in a way that, especially if we're talking like white collar women um, who have been in a lot of ways like removed from these institutions and these companies that have, you know, either tried to manipulate a feminist narrative 
or have propagated like white feminist ideologies. I think that for women who work outside the home, you know, in very professional settings, COVID sets up a very powerful landscape to change, especially mainstream feminism in this country, where you have, you know, a number of women who work outside the home in these very professional capacities and then are, you know, as all these trend pieces keep telling us, doing all the domestic work, doing all the cooking, um, effectively homeschooling their children. And the, you know, burnout, like there are all these different words, you know, ping-ponging back and forth across our nation as we try and describe like what is happening to those specific women and also the ways in which a lot of, you know, work that women have done, whether that's, you know, low-income labor or domestic labor, is clearly not factored into our country and the foundational tenants of our country. Um, So that you have, in some ways, very senior women, I keep reading, who are, you know, giving quotes to the New York Times, giving quotes to the Washington Post. And they seem to be very, almost lamenting the fact that they can't, you know, quote unquote, live up to feminism, which I, you know, take issue with when I read it on face value, because what they're basically saying is that they, you know, can't live up to white feminism right now. Um, But, you know, white feminism never has been a structural solution. White feminism was always an aspirational model. It was not made or designed to tweak the structures that have, you know, in some ways exploited you and made uh, a number of women in this country, you know, either leave their jobs or be laid off from their jobs and therefore be saddled with the entire work of the home as well as that of their children. Um, So I think that those dynamics have not only for, you know, some women I read about really punctured the, you know, aspiration of white feminism, but I think it sets them up to think differently about what feminism could be and also, you know, what they need as marginalized genders. You know, they need, when I hear and see, you know, on on podcasts and in news stories, um, these women talking about how overworked they are in the pandemic, you know, they need subsidized childcare. They need universal Mm -hmm. childcare. They need, um, you know, paid time off that, that goes beyond, you know, two weeks. They need all these structural supports that white feminism has not advocated for. And in some ways that has been a very strategic conscious decision because it's about individual ascension. It's not about collective gains. And when we're in the voting booth, do you think we'll start seeing a shift? I mean, are we hopefully going to start seeing that shift? Obviously, we had a record amount of voter turnout this election, huge numbers of women now winning their local elections. Do you think we'll see more supportive ballots in place and childcare? I mean, are you, are you seeing that now? I don't know if I'm seeing it yet. I, I am cautiously optimistic that I will see that. I mean, uh, again, the the numbers that are coming out of this pandemic, you know, whether we're talking about uh, domestic workers, you know, who have lost so much work, you know, in this pandemic and haven't been able to pay rent or mortgages in six months through like, you know, more m- middle class women who are really at their wits end with all of the labor that they have to do we're really primed to put forward certain efforts like that and to have people, you know, actually be, I think, at places in their lives where they would be receptive to these conversations, you know, having done a year plus of, you know, very, very, very intense labor across all these different facets without any structural supports. So I hope so. I was just reading the other day that apparently Colorado as a state passed a measure where basically they have like, I think it's state, you know, 
state protected or, you know, funded leave for small businesses, which is, I mean, you know, they voted for that, <laughs> yeah. um, which is amazing, you know, because these initiatives, I don't think should be, you know, put on small business owners either because they don't have the resources This should come from our government. So I hope so. It's still early yet. And because of these bureaucratic channels by which we have to, you know, put forward legislation, have people vote on it, it gets on a ballot, you know, it's not quick. It's not an Instagram post. <laughs> it's yeah. going to take a while. <laughs> yes. I also wanted to discuss, uh, speaking of taking a while, and, and it's not just an Instagram post, your pillars of change that you you wrote about. Um, and the first pillar, you say, we just need to stop acknowledging privilege, fight for visibility instead. Can you expand on that further for us? Happily. Um, it's something I've given a lot of thought to, especially with a lot of, um, you know, spaces that I've walked through and meetings that I've, you know, had to sit in that are, you know, basically constructed of very feminist identified people. Um, I have watched specifically in my lifetime, um, the word privileged be used as more so a disclaimer than a perforation. So what I mean when I say that is like, you know, in like professional settings I've been in where I raise the fact that, you know, hypothetically, we haven't covered this issue or, you know, we haven't really explored, you know, subjects from these specific backgrounds or we haven't, you know, taken feminism, you know, to this other level of interpretation. A common defense that I have gotten from power when I raise that is that, um, my manager is a privileged woman and therefore, you know, doesn't need to explore things like that and, and, you know, can't because she's white or she's middle class or she's straight, at least on the internet. You know, when I started watching the word privilege, like pop up in very colloquial essays, it didn't really start out that way. Like it, when I started seeing it, you know, in the internet scape, it was very much a, um, method by which to reframe conversations that were happening in which, you know, very insular people were talking about worldwide issues from a very, very narrow lens. But I watched it, you know, through the ideology of white feminism, kind of be like a permission slip to be very self-interested <laughs> um, <laughs> in that there's, there's no you know, there's no, um, like challenge happening, you know, so, so you're a privileged person and then it, it ends there. Um, and it's kind of, I use this metaphor a lot in my book, but it's kind of the cul-de-sac of white feminism. Like I am a very elite woman who is super privileged and therefore I will stay a very elite woman who is very privileged. Um, whereas, you know, I think there are, um, and I try to use myself as an example, you know, to some degree in the book, I think there are ways in which privilege can be leveraged, you know, to change circumstances for other people or to advocate for certain causes. What I advocate for is, you know, in circumstances in which you're talking about, you know, being a privileged person, being a powerful person, being a very prominent person in a certain arena, I think the better way and a more effective way to use that is not to say, you know, that you are privileged as a disclaimer, but to prioritize more so visibility. Um, and, you know, that can be for, you know, low-income women, that can be for Native women, that can be for queer people, um, in the sense that, you know, when I look at the long-enduring narrative of white feminism, women who are Native, women who are immigrants, women who are disabled, they don't even exist in this movement, 
Um, and I think that visibility and positioning yourself more towards that rather than making sure to tell everyone how privileged you are um, is a more effective way of using that station. And then you you go on for your second pillar of change um, that after increasing that visibility that you're talking about, um, women need the basic need to feed and nourish their bodies and and the importance of food insecurity and why we really need to pay attention to that and how it coincides with feminism. Can you share a little bit about for our listeners that um, why why they need to pay attention to food insecurity and how they can participate in bridging the gap. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I feel like a, a general good check, uh, a lot of your listeners can have, and even, you know, beyond this program, a pattern I've noticed is that, you know, to prevent, especially given how, you know, steeped a lot of our culture has been in white feminism, I think it can be challenging for some people to, you know, either find their way out of it or find their way around it or like clock it, you know, when they see it. And I think a good general check, you know, depending on, you know, whether you do work in this, you know, really elite corporate world or you don't, or you work in like community organizing or, you know, you're trying to volunteer, you know, at your children's school, um, Flipping around the priorities of white feminism and starting with basic need, I feel like is a really good check to do when considering women's rights and non-binary rights in this country in that, you know, most women in this country and globally, you could also argue, you know, they're not looking to be a girl boss. They're not looking to start a newsletter. They're not looking to, you know, be a corporate leader. They're actually looking for affordable housing. They're looking to be food secure. They're looking to have access to clean water. And that is the lanes by which, you know, many people come to feminism um, and not white feminism, but, you know, feminism broadly um, yeah. and buying tampons and- without attacks on them. <laughs> Yeah, like, you know, and initiatives that are like that. So I feel like generally speaking, you know, in your workplace, in your community organizing, that is a good place to start. And also in in a lot of ways, like control for white feminism. And Koa, you, you talk about holding women accountable for their abuse. I mean, a- accountability is definitely something that needs to be in the forefront of the conversation, especially with white women. Can you talk to our listeners about what accountability means to you? Sure. So I think when thinking about, you know, abuse broadly and and exploitation too, because some of those things, some of those dynamics can go hand in hand. I don't think it's necessarily helpful to think about this solely in terms of gender. Because while, you know, cis men have had the most power generally since, you know, a lot of our history, they're, you know, as last summer indicated with a lot of stories that were in the news, but also just frankly, history and lived experience, women are not immune to abusing and exploiting others. And in fact, you know, through the ideological tenets of white feminism, you know, which basically encourages you to be exploitative of other people, encourages you to take advantage of other people, to pay them very minimal wages, to make sure that they serve this, you know, very specific higher need that is very profit oriented. I feel like in some ways, you know, more women leaders than ever are are being fed this very patriarchal blueprint towards being 
a CEO or, you know, any sort of like powerful figure. Um, and I don't think that's an accident, you know, that white feminism operates that way. And in, in thinking about, you know, the mantras that I'm sure a lot of your listeners have heard for some time now, especially in my lifetime, the march to simply be powerful, right, to be a leader, to um, take on these big roles, you know, without any inhibitions or, you know, imposter syndrome. But what happens when you get there, when you get to, you know, this metaphoric C-suite or this, you know, huge lofty role, then what are you going to do when you get there? Are you going to continue the same patriarchal practices that a cis man, you know, would have done before you in the same role? Are you going to basically ensure that freelancers don't have health insurance? Are you going to make sure that wages stay really low so profits stay very high? And I I don't think that's coincidental that white feminism has never advocated, you know, the other half of that because it's not an ideology that considers any sort of structural oppression. Having said that, I, I use an example in the book that I think is very pertinent when um, Me Too was reawakened in this country in 2017 and 2018. As these stories started to roll out of, you know, really abusive, terrifying men who had preyed on women, um, I started to see something really common in the Twitter sphere where like, for instance, you know, a lot of women I've worked with, you know, at very elite publications or, you know, organizations were saying like, this is why I'm so thankful I work at an organization with other women. The implication being that nothing like this would ever happen to them. And I think that's a really obtuse response to how abuse works in that the implication there is that you could not be abused by another woman or that another woman could not racially harass you or, you know, say something very denigrating about your body um, that is, you know, an intensely racist standard or, you know, mock your same sex relationship as being quote unquote easier. I mean, these sorts of abuses and harassment happen all the time. I document many of them in my book. (laughs) Um, So it's it's not um, I think that when you narrow abuse to only being about cis men and the dynamics of cis men, you are missing the experiences of many women in this country. And where can we go to educate ourselves? How can we be better? Well, I think that um, broadly speaking, you know, like I could say, right, like make sure you go to like these rallies <laughs> or make yeah. sure you go to, you know, these organizations or make sure you follow, you know, Alicia Garza or whatever. But I think that, you know, not knowing the history of how we got here and, you know, what women of a variety of backgrounds have needed in this country, especially in the face of feminism. I feel like me saying that or or advising that just is kind of like a really empty, like racist checklist. (laughs) Um, I think a good action step, honestly, really, you know, before everything, um, is to understand this history. I think one of the things that culturally has been very successful in our country, white feminism aside, is these ways in which we've been siloed from each other. And so we all have these very different histories and ways of living, you know, that we've in some ways inherited from our families that other people really don't know anything about. Um, And in some ways that's intentional, you know, to keep our suburbs very segregated to keep schools for only, you know, certain kids. Um, That's been very strategic. So I think that, I mean, 
I took great pains in my book to write a very, very, very elaborate and robust bibliography. (laughs) So even my book aside, I think that I list so many thinkers in my book very, very intentionally. And I did that for you, honestly. I mean, these are the people that have shaped my understanding of gender, have shaped the way that I think about feminism. And in writing this book, I mean, I I didn't just want to like summarize Angela Davis. I didn't want to summarize Bell Hooks. I, I wanted you to actually engage with the archive and what these incredible thinkers have said 30 years ago, 40 years ago, 50 years ago, that are the same conversations that we're having right now. And so if you're looking to read and grow your understanding of feminism, I highly encourage my bibliography (laughs) Um, because I spent a lot of time on it and I really tried to make it as well-rounded as possible in terms of queer women, in terms of trans women, in terms of immigrant women, in terms of working class women. If I was to teach gender studies in this country, I would teach it with that bibliography. (laughs) (laughs) What organizations do you love? Yeah. um, I mean, it's not uniquely for women necessarily, but um, I I lived, uh, I moved to LA. I moved home to LA in late 2019. But before then, I lived in New York for about 10 years. And an organization that I supported, uh, and I mean, like down through, like when I got married, I asked that, you know, in lieu of like a wedding registry or gifts or anything, I specifically asked people to donate to Ali Forney, um, which is a um, homeless LGBTQ shelter in in New York. And I, I really admire the efforts that they do and also the ways in which they have both taken up and also continued certain queer narratives in this country, especially as, you know, certain people being out has become less stigmatized. But, you know, the kids who have been living on the Chelsea Pier, for instance, you know, who have run away from home or, you know, had to leave very abusive circumstances because of the way that they present in their gender, you know, the way that they walk in the world, you know, they're not, their circumstances and ways of living aren't necessarily going to be impacted by like more celebrities coming out and having very expensive weddings, you know, like they need a very specific reality to be food secure, to have affordable housing that, you know, even as it's become acceptable to have like a same-sex wedding registry, that's not going to affect them and their lives. Um, And I, especially for your listeners, I mean, I use the term a lot in my book, marginalized genders, um, to speak to a spectrum of identities because, you know, there's cis women, there's trans women, there's trans men, there's gender variant people. And the way that our structures exist Um, target all of us, you know, for very different reasons because of our gender and because of our gender presentation. And it's not necessarily siloed to people who identify as women. It's a very strict and limiting script that has been propagated in this country, you know, by which you can't achieve a basic standard of living. So I would recommend Ali Forney for sure. Thank you. And we'll make sure to have that in our show notes for our listeners. Koa, before we end this discussion with you. I know Candace and I just want to thank you for writing this book because and taking the time to do it and writing the history and going back and take doing all the work so that we and our listeners and everyone out there can read it. 
and start to be a part of the change because it is so important. And I mean, there's so much in your book that we haven't touched on. It's almost like we could <laughs> talk to you forever. It's, <laughs> it's infuriating how fast this went. But um, if there was some one last thing that you would want our listeners to take away from this conversation, um, what, what would be? I, I said it a little earlier, but I think it bears repeating because it is so important. There, there has never been one singular feminism. There never has been. And uh, the fact that, you know, I wrote a book like this to challenge the idea that there, you know, has has been a, a dominant feminism or like a mainstream feminism um, speaks to, I think, how deeply ingrained that acceptance is, you know, that there is, whether you're, you're identifying or not, um, there's, you know, white feminism and then and there's everybody else um, as if like these other feminisms are somehow like reactionary to white feminism and that white feminism is the default. That's not true. And there are so many movements that you can learn about and learn from that are very interested in women's rights, non-binary rights, two-spirit rights, um, really encapsulating what it's like to live under patriarchy, where we default everything to one gender and everybody else has to work around that mindset. And so many other movements have interpreted this and have um, assembled their own strategies for combating it. And so I really, if you are interested in my book, I did a very, very robust bibliography for a reason <laughs> so that you can keep reading and you can keep reading specifically from the, the people who have shaped my thinking and have challenged the way that I think about gender. Mm -hmm. um, if you are interested in my book, keep reading. <laughs> And if people, if our listeners want to get in touch with you, where can they find you on social media? I am on Instagram. Um, I'm at Koa Beck. And then Twitter, I am at Koalani, um, K-O-A-L-A-N-I. I have a website that has all my, you know, book tour dates. If you want to come hear me talk, um, it's just koabeck.com. And then I do have a public Facebook. It's Koa Beck Author. And we'll have all those in our show notes for anyone listening. Um, Koa, thanks for joining us today. And what a great discussion. <laughs> Thank you so much, Kayla and Candace, for having me, really. I really appreciate it. Koa Beck, again, the name of her book is White Feminism, From the Suffragettes to Influencers and Who They Leave Behind. Thank you, Koa, for joining us. Uh, if you guys want to continue to educate yourselves, uh, just to repeat what Koa said, uh, please refer to her book. She has this whole reference guide to all the historical figures and books that she read and articles that she read. And if you want to continue your education, um, I'm so grateful that she included that in her book. So, so beautifully organized so that we can continue the work. You know, it's so nice to sit down with Koa and discuss where feminism was and where it is now and to see the growth that I mean, how far we've come, but also to acknowledge and understand that there's still so much work left to do. And I know she so eloquently put that that's why she started, right? Why she wrote this book and why she wants to continue to have these conversations. And that's why we had her on to, to continue to have these conversations. We don't want it to just go away. And I just think she's done such a good job with it. I found it really interesting to hear about her experience as an editor and how that was rooted in 
part of the reason why she wanted to write this book in the first place. I've, I learned a lot. I learned a lot from reading this book. I learned a lot from having this conversation. I learned that I'm still uncomfortable having this conversation right. because I feel that I am not... Um, as educated in the history of feminism and intersectional feminism at that, um, to the point where I'm even stumbling over saying it because mm-hmm. it's still like a new word in my mouth. Um, so I really truly have taken away a lot from this conversation that I'm excited to continue my education. And I think that's the root of what I've taken away from this conversation is I have a lot more to learn beyond just Spice Girls of the 90s, throwing up peace signs, saying girl power and buying a mug that says hashtag feminist. There's a lot more to do and to learn. And and that's where I'm really inspired walking away from from sitting down with Koa. Right. I'm right there with you. And I think that that is what Koa wants. That's what she wants is for our listeners and anyone reading her book to take away that the work is not done and to accept that there is still so much to do and be excited and be ready to be productive in doing that. Yes. As white women, there is a responsibility to educate ourselves and I'm ready to reference the back of her book. You know, (laughs) there's in so many uh, of these references will be in the show notes as always, um, you know, that Koa referenced throughout this episode And I am humbled by how my eyes were opened from this conversation about how little I think I knew on this subject matter. Right. And so, um, but I am also really grateful for the opportunity of having been able to sit down with uh, female-led organizations on this podcast that we want to highlight. You know, one of the great things that Koa mentioned was, you know, look throughout your community of how you can support women who are around you. And, you know, I was really thrilled that we've had some great organizations, um, female-led organizations that are supporting women uh, that we've had on this podcast as guests and and talked about. Um, Some that I really love, Harvest Home and hashtag happy period. Uh, we've sat down with Moms Demand Action. I know we also have um, an episode with The Little Market, which is a nonprofit that su- supports survivors of trafficking and abuse. And I want to continue to bring on companies like that. Let's keep Let's keep this good work going. If you guys have any organizations that you love, please reach out. We're always trying to find new organizations to support and people to interview. Let us know what you took away from this and how you are furthering your education. We love our Directionally Challenged community. And we hope you enjoyed this episode as much as we did. Uh, We have another great one coming up. We'll see you next week. Directionally Challenged is a production of Pineapple Productions. Producer, Melissa DeMonts. Edited by Katrina Henning. Post-production sound by Chris Henry. Music by Joe King. And advertising partnership with ACAST. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. 
But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps to Detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.